Hey guys, welcome to another episode of In the Trenches with Andrew Taylor. In this episode, I had the opportunity to interview Jeffrey Arnett. Uh, Jeffrey is a research professor of psychology at Clark University in Worcester, Massachusetts. Now, for all you Boston people that just cringed, and I've been practicing this for a long time now, Worcester, Massachusetts is what you would all call it, right? He's the originator of the theory of emerging adulthood and the author of Emerging Adulthood, which is a book about uh, the winding road from the late teens through the 20s. He currently serves as the executive director of the Society for the Study of Emerging Adulthood, and he lives in Worcester with his wife, Lean Jensen, and their twins, Miles and Paris. I had the opportunity to meet Jeffrey last fall in Coeur d'Alene, Idaho. We had a great conversation. Uh, we connected on the fact that we both have twins that are boys and girls. And he's just a wonderful person. He's got a lot of heart. He's put his heart and soul into this project and the work that he's doing. And I love his optimism. There's a lot of negativity around younger generations, but I really think that he frames things in a really positive and optimistic way. And I think we have a lot to relate with in that sense. And so this interview was a lot of fun, uh, a ton of information, really good data. We talk about college, we talk about marriage, we talk about depression, anxiety, and all the things that are affecting these younger generations and how the world's changed. So I hope you enjoy it. Please give me feedback. And as always, thanks for joining. Okay, Jeffrey Arnett, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, glad to be here. Great. Let's jump in. You are credited with, uh, you're, you're sort of responsible for the term emerging adulthood which is really cool. Maybe we could just start with how that came about and sort of what your interest is on this topic. Sure. Well, in the 1990s, I became interested in learning more about people in their 20s. It seemed like a population that had not been studied much. In psychology, we have a long history of focusing on the early years, and eventually we made our way up to adolescence. But I felt like the 20s were an uncharted continent. And I, at the time, was just having finished that decade myself. And I was curious about what people would say about what it was like to be in their 20s and what sort of challenges and difficulties and stresses they faced at that age. So for most of the 1990s, I just interviewed people. And I interviewed people of all kinds, black and brown and yellow and white and all sorts of social classes, urban and rural, all over the U.S. And they were absolutely fascinating. I loved the interviews. And by the end of it, after about three, four years of doing those kinds of interviews, I started to think, you know, they're, they're not adolescents. This is not just an extended adolescence, as some people were calling it at the time. But they're not really young adults either. I mean, the way they talk about their lives are as an in-between period. They talk about being adults in some ways, but not others. And it's true. They're, many of them are not finished with their education. And they're just making their way into the workplace. They don't have children yet. They're not married yet. Uh, at least until the end of their 20s for most of them. So I thought, you know what, we need a new name for it. It's not helpful to call them late adolescents, and it also obscures who they are to call them young adults and also call people in their 30s young adults. So I proposed the term emerging adulthood, and that is a term that kind of took off, at least in psychology and the rest of academia, and it's made its way into the popular culture too, to some extent. So I think it really resonated with a lot of people to give a new name to this new way of going through your 20s now that so many people stay in education longer and they marry and have their first child later than ever before. Yeah, and I, I, I definitely relate to the emerging adulthood experience. And I think hearing you speak on it, reading your book, this is about me. You know, and I'm a, I'm a late Gen Xer, but it still really applies to me. And I think the world has significantly changed. Well, I think 
people are changing and the world's changing, but we're not, I don't think we're adapting to who this population is, right? We're not addressing this, this area as much as we could. And so maybe could you differentiate a little bit between the term young adult and emerging adulthood? Like what's the difference and in, in what's the significance of identifying these 20s experience? Like what's that look like now? Well, traditionally, when we think about adulthood, we think about stable work, marriage, or some other committed long-term partnership, and parenthood. Those are sort of the three things that go along with the adult role. Traditionally, and really still to a large extent, and those things used to happen for most people by around age 20. It's only recently that most people at least get some college education or some kind of training after high school. And if you go back 50, even 50 years ago, most people were marrying around 20, 21, 22 years old. And now it's a decade later that marriage and parenthood happen compared to where it used to typically happen. And you've got so, you've got the 20s opening up as this decade of exploration and trying out things and being on the way to adulthood, but not there yet. So I really feel like we needed a new term for this thing that's never really happened before. The 20s have never before been this period where you're mostly independent from your parents, but not yet committed to other people. And so I felt like we needed a new name for it and, and that it couldn't be called young adulthood because they're not fully adults, the way they see themselves, most of them. They see themselves as on the way to adulthood, but not yet there. And young adulthood, I think, is better reserved for that period that comes after emerging adulthood, where you have taken on these so-called adult commitments of long-term work and marriage and parenthood. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I think that, I, I think one of the reasons I connect with this is you know, I grew up in a community and my parents are silent generation. So, you know, my mom had me at 40 and, you know, again, there's this sort of template that, that a lot of people grow up in. And that is, is right. Get married by the home, start the career. And, um, I, I did it very differently, not intentionally, actually, I would say it by default, I didn't marry, well, I married in my late 20s and divorced, but didn't remarry until late 30s and just had my kids. As you know, you have twins, I have twins. And, um, you know, so I really relate to, to this path of process. And so I think it's really weird, <laughs> dare I say, that we ask 18, 19 and 20 year olds, what are you going to do with your life? <laughs> and and I you know, with the rise of anxiety and depression and all of that, and it's, it's a different world that they're growing up in. What are you seeing in terms of that? And, and how do we do it differently? Well, it's interesting you should say that, Andrew. I certainly have talked to a lot of emerging adults who tell me they're very grateful to hear about this concept because they had been feeling a lot of pressure to decide on big questions at the age of 18, 19, even 22, 23, and they didn't know the answers to those questions. And my concept of emerging adulthood to them gave them the freedom to say, you know what, I don't know, and I'm sure I'll eventually figure it out. But right now, I have no idea. I need to grow up more. I need to learn more about myself. I need to learn more about what's available to me in the world. And right now, I'm going to take advantage of that freedom and have a period of exploration without feeling a lot of pressure to make lifelong decisions. I think you're absolutely right. It's, it's way too much in the modern world to ask people to make lifelong commitments at 18 or 20 or even 23, 25, when life lasts longer than ever. I mean... You know, most people can count on living into their 80s or 90s if they have reasonable good fortune and take reasonably good care of themselves. So why don't we give people a little more time at the beginning to figure out who they are and what they want out of life before making those big commitments? I'm a big believer in that, you know, and you've got, 
I, I see this a lot in my program as well with the young adults that are we're training for depression and anxiety is this overwhelming sense of, I don't know what I want to be. I, I don't, I don't know what I'm going to major in. And it's like, you know, I'm a big advocate for slow this, like, it's okay to not know, like slow the process down. Let's normalize not knowing and let's change the language around. You should know. And I actually tell them, you get bad advice. We are, as a society, giving you terrible advice. This idea that you should have insight into a lifelong career at 18 or 19 or 20 or even 23, like you said, is, is absurd. And yeah, you need to be working. You need to be progressing. But let's change the, the mindset on this whole process. Take a little pressure off and, and enjoy it. Exactly. Let's see it as an opportunity instead of as a burden or some kind of failure, failure to launch, failure to figure out who you are at age 20. I mean, that's really a ridiculous conclusion. We really should see it as an opportunity because it is an opportunity. I mean, throughout most of human history, people have had to get very serious about life at a very early age in order to contribute to their families and in order to survive. We're fortunate to live in a time and a place, if we're talking about the U.S. and other affluent countries, where we have the freedom to have most of our 20s to try out different things. And so when we make those big commitments, we can hopefully have made better choices than if we had to be forced into those commitments in our teens or very early 20s. In your experience with all of the interviews and all of the research and conversations you've had, do the young people that are, that are naturally fitting into this process, do they feel that? Or do you feel that you validate them with your book? Well, I think it's mixed. I think there's a lot of variability. Some people do love the freedom of it. And they talk about how, oh, I'm in no hurry to get married and have kids and get a job that I'm going to have for the next 30 or 40 years. I want to enjoy being young and, and having this freedom. But there are quite a lot of other people that say, as you've been saying, you here as well, oh my gosh, you know, here I am 24 and I don't know what I'm going to do yet and I have no idea and I must have failed. There must be something wrong with me. And, and they do find it comforting to hear that this is what's normal now and there isn't anything wrong with you if you can't figure out your life uh, by the time you're 20 or 22 or 25 even uh, there's nothing wrong with you and and it comes clear for almost everybody i think that's important to note almost nobody is still changing jobs a couple of times a year and not married or no partner and no kids and no stable life in their 30s, 40s, 50s. I mean, that is extremely rare in those later decades where it's what most people are like in their 20s. Right. So what do you tell them? What's your advice to a, a young adult that might be really anxious or stressed about needing to have it all figured out? Yeah, I, I do think it's important to be exploring in some planful way. I think, I mean, there's a lot to be said for just having fun too, especially when you're in the early part of those years, when you're 18, 19, 20, 23. Uh, I think it's important to have fun, but I also think there's a benefit to exploring different possibilities. So you may not know what you're going to do, but you can take a job in a related field and see if that seems like something you enjoy and are good at. Or you can try taking a class in that area and see if that resonates with you and is something you'd want to pursue further. I do, some, I do think it's important to enjoy the freedom, but also make the most of it and that you can find that balance. You can have your fun and also be exploring in a planful way. Exactly. 
But let me add to that, Andrew, that sometimes you just don't know. And I'm seeing this right now in my own daughter. I have twins who are 20 years, years old. And my son, he knows exactly what he wants to do. He came home from school at eight years old and said, I'm going to be an engineer. He'd seen some engineer who came to their classroom. And he loves math and he loves figuring things out and making things. And he said, I want to be an engineer. And now he's in the second year of an engineering program. And he's going to be an engineer, I'm sure of it. But my daughter, she loves everything. She loves science, she loves French, music, literature, history, uh, you name it. She loves to learn. And you can't really tell her, well, start exploring in a planful way because she just doesn't have any idea. Every semester she takes new classes, she finds something new she loves. She had astronomy last semester and absolutely fell in love with it. And that's fine too. She's only 20 years old. And sure, if, if she was living in a country where her family had no money and they really needed her to go out and get a job and do something so the family wouldn't starve, then she would do that. But again, we're fortunate, most of us in this country and who live in the more affluent countries of the world, we're fortunate to have the freedom to let that unfold gradually. And it will. I have no doubt my daughter will figure things out by the end of her 20s. And it's fine with me if it takes that long. Yeah, I love that message and excitement around it, right? Because we do right. tend, I think, to look down on that. Like we, we value people who know what they want to do young. And have you done any research on how many people know what they want to do at a young age, actually do it, and how happy they are in that? Because <laughs> we both know a lot of attorneys that knew they wanted to be attorneys at 19 and hate their job. Right. <laughs> right? I, that's well, what I, I bring up to everybody. And they're like, yes, we know that person. And it's, it, it's sad. And so... I've always been fascinated. In my opinion, it's about 30%, but I've never seen research or done any. Do you, do you have anything on that? That's a great question, Andrew. I'm just about to begin some research on people in their 30s to find out what comes after emerging adulthood. So if you interview me again in a year or two, I should be able to tell you. But I can tell you from what I've done so far that the people who seem to know early, in my experience, tend to be in some kind of technical field, like my son, where he knew he wanted to be an engineer because he loves math and he likes to figure out systems and he would love to create new systems. I mean, that just really suited him. And I've, you know, I've interviewed people who have become electricians or uh, computer analysts, things like that. They just knew and I found that more in technical fields. I think it can happen in the arts too, things like music and uh, writing and the other arts, but that can, that can turn out to be a really tough way to make a living. I'm a musician myself and I've known a lot of musicians who went into it because they loved it and they still love it years later, but they have found out by the time they get into their 30s and 40s and onward that it turns out to be a really tough way to make a living and, and have uh, a decent life with a family. So I would say it's complicated, but I would really like to interview people in their 30s and see how their youthful emerging adult dreams now appear to them. And I'm biased, right? Because I, again, I followed that path of the unknown through my 20s. I took a lot of heat for it. <laughs> and, you know, at times, and quite frankly, I felt insecure about it often. You know, I looked at my peers that had it all figured out at 22 and, and I was insecure about it. Like, man, why, why is he got it? You know, he knew he wanted to be a doctor. He's well on his way. He's doing great work. And here I am, you know, 28, um, still trying to figure it out. And, and I have my interests and I'm getting, I, I'm working hard, but I'm, you know, I didn't have a lot to show for it. And so I think that my bias is, is now in my 30s, I would tell you that my job is my dream job. I found my dream job. And had I not allowed for that space in my 20s, I don't think I would have landed here. 
and and so it feels good right and that's why i'm personally invested in that research and excited that you're doing it and um, i'm going to take your invitation for another podcast as a commitment right now to uh, right. do this again <laughs> in a, in yeah, a glad, to. glad to i will say that i think you're lucky andrew to be able to say that in your 30s that you found your dream job i know that having interviewed people through their 20s even by their late 20s a lot of the people that i've interviewed they'll say well initially i wanted to do this or that really cool thing right be a musician or uh do some athletic uh profession you know be a professional sports star originally i wanted to do this and that didn't work out but now i'm doing this other thing and it's not what I dreamed of, but you know what? It's pretty good. I'm finding a way to be happy with it. So that's my sense so far. That's my sort of working hypothesis for what I'll find among people in their 30s that, yeah, they, they won't mostly have be able to say as you did, oh, I found my dream job. But they'll say, I found a job that, that I like okay and I can live with. It's not, it's not my dream job, but it's, it's good enough for now. So... In terms of statistics and trends, what do you think's worth mentioning with the young people that, that are coming up now um, in terms of education, marriage, sex, relationships? I mean, what are the things that really stick out to you? I mean, there, you have a ton of research in your book and too much to, to probably talk about, but what are some salient themes that you think are worth mentioning and that people should really be aware of? Great question. You know, I've been doing this research now for 30 years, so I've seen a lot of changes. When I first started this research 30 years ago, the median ages of marriage and parenthood were already going up, but they've gone up a lot more. They've continued to go upward and upward, and it makes me wonder where it's going to stop. Right now in the U.S., it's about 30 for men, the median marriage age, and 28 for women. And the typical age of having your first child is about the same. In Europe, it's even later. It's about 32 for men and 30 for women. You also have a greater proportion of people between 15 and 20%, depending on what country you're looking at in the, uh, among the developed countries, who choose not to have children, which I think is a really interesting trend to watch. And the way they explain it from the studies I've seen, is that some of them simply decide that they really love the freedom of emerging adulthood and they don't want to give it up. And you and I know kids are wonderful. You and I are both dedicated dads and have reveled in being a dad. I wouldn't trade it for anything personally, but <laughs> it is like nothing else in this demands on you. And yeah, it does curtail your freedom drastically. And it means you have less time with your spouse, just the two of you. It interferes with that kind of marital closeness. So, so there are a lot of sacrifices to it. And you have a rising proportion of people who are saying, you know what, that's just not for me. I don't wanna make those sacrifices. And I think that'll be important to watch and see if, see if that proportion continues to grow. It's still fairly low, as I said, 15 to 20%, but that's higher than a generation or two ago, what was more like 10%. So that's one thing. The other thing that is really striking to me, Andrew, that has happened since I began my research is the rise of portable media and the fact that everybody has a phone especially young people, but really people of all ages. And it's so much a part of life now. People are so connected to their devices. Uh, I think that's changed how we live, especially for emerging adults. It has some positive sides. I have surveyed them about it and asked them about it in interviews. And it's clear that they value that a lot as a way of keeping in touch with friends and family at an age where they move around a lot, they change, they tend to move, uh, change residence a lot, change uh, the part of the country or the world that they live, on, live in. Social media can be great for keeping up with people when you move to a new place. But it definitely has this other side too, where people get really preoccupied with it and it interferes with their here and now experience. I mean, 
we've all seen people in restaurants and maybe we've been those people too who sit at a table with three other people and, and everybody's looking at their phones instead of having a conversation. So I think that too, I'm, I'm seeing that as a really striking trend since I began my research and I'm wondering where that's gonna go. Yeah, you know, um, and I like the optimistic approach that you take in your book with, with respect to the social media. And I am guilty of, of railing on it you know, and, and talking about the negative effects, but I'm starting to change my opinion. I still feel strongly about exposure to it, especially at a young age, but I'm starting to change my opinion just on conversations I've had and some of the research coming out that like, if you take social media away from a young person, an emerging adult, totally, their ability to now make friends is significantly impacted because that's how they make friends. Hey, right. nice, nice to meet you. What's your Instagram name? Let's connect. Mm -hmm. you right. know? And, and if you're unable to do that, you know, some of these young people that we're trying to help get a healthy social life and we say, stay away from social media. They're like, dude, <laughs> how, <laughs> how am I supposed to make friends? Cause this is the new reality. Right. And so right. I, I, I liked how you kind of walked through in your book that, Listen, we all freaked out when TV, TVs came on and, and the older generation said, this is going to be the downfall. You know? <laughs> um, can right. you speak to that? Maybe just kind of give our listeners a little bit of sort of what your thought and ideas on that? Yeah, absolutely. I, I'm fascinated by the history of this because it's not just TV that people were alarmed about when it first appeared and how that was going to ruin social life and ruin everything. It's also even... A hundred years ago, there was a lot of worry about dime novels, Andrew. The uh, person, G. Stanley Hall, who was given credit for conceptualizing adolescence, being the first one to do that. One of the things he wrote about in his book on adolescence was the, the perils of dime novels, you know, because they were too racy and, and too exciting for the teenage mind. Well, we all know how asinine that is from a modern perspective. And the whole thing about TV and movies were the same. People worry, were worried, oh, this is going to be just artificial experience and people aren't going to be really able to relate each other. Those fears turned out to be overblown too. And early in my career, Andrew, I don't know if I've mentioned this to you, but before I did my emerging adult research, I did a study on heavy metal fans and they were absolutely fascinating. This was in the 1980s at a time when heavy metal was big news and there are all sorts of overblown fears about it and so i studied them and i found them to be fascinating and i found the fears to be way overblown you know what they told me mainly when i asked them uh about the effects of the music they said it calms me down which was absolutely astonishing to me and just an example of how these these assumptions we make that media are going to have this or that effect uh, are often overblown and, and not connected to reality. Now that said, I, as I mentioned, I think there are some fears about social media that are legitimate because it can be a substitute for real experience for in some extreme cases. And people can get in these theological cocoons on social media where the views are extreme and they start to adopt extreme views and to become more and more detached from from reality, honestly. So that, that's a concern too, and something to watch for. But, but overall, like any new media uh, form, it's, it's a mixed bag. Yeah, it's, it, it can have damaging effects, but for the most part, it doesn't. And, and there are a lot of good effects that it has too. Yeah, and I, I think this speaks to the trend of the older generations always being uncomfortable with, and I'm starting to fit this category, by the way, <laughs> it's, you know, always being uncomfortable with what's going on with the younger generations. One of my favorite things to do is to quote Kurt Hahn, the founder of Outward Bound, and he's talking about the, the young generation of his time. Now, I believe this was in like the late 1800s. And he's like, they're lazy, they don't work, they don't know how to socialize. Like, and I share that when I present sometimes is like, we're saying all the same things, guys. <laughs> like, this hasn't changed. And so 
I don't know. I, I guess, you know, what's, what's your take on maybe kicking that trend or why this happens? And obviously, if it's been happening for hundreds of years, I'm not about to change how that works. But I think that's why young people have a hard time respecting authority, right, at certain ages. And anyway, I, I guess just like, what do we do as an older generation? My big thing is, is like, get educated, like get savvy to this younger generation. Instead of kicking back on it, try to understand them. Do you have experience working with families? Working with oh, people? all too much, Andrew. I've heard this so many times, and I've written about it a lot, about these negative stereotypes that older people have of emerging adults and how unfounded they are. To me, where it comes from in this generation between emerging adults and older adults is that things have changed really fast. It's only 50 years, which is a blink of the eye in historical time, that emerging adult has really, emerging adulthood has really become normative, it's become typical that people experience this period for a decade or more, from 18 to sometime in their late 20s, maybe even early, early 30s, where they're in this in-between state and they haven't yet made the commitments of adult life. And it's true that 50 years ago, most of those people made those commitments by the time they were 20, 21, 22 years old, and now they don't. So that's alarming to some adults who are applying the old timetables to them because that's might have been when they made those transitions to things like long-term work and marriage and parenthood. And kids aren't doing that now, so they see that and they think there must be something wrong with them. And so they say, oh, they, they're failing to grow up. They don't want to grow up. They don't want to ever grow up. And, and therefore, they're defective. Well, I think that's nonsense. I mean, they're not failing to grow up. They're just taking longer than before to make these serious lifelong commitments. And that's a good thing in a lot of, the way, in a lot of ways. It does raise the likelihood that you'll choose the right person and have a lifelong marriage and that you'll have kids when you're ready to have kids and really want kids and are planning to have kids and that when you choose a long-term direction and work you will find something rewarding those are all things that happen when you have emerging adulthood when you make those commitments around age 30 instead of around age 20. And those are all things we should celebrate. And I found too that when I explain this to parents, they nod and say, you know, that makes a lot of sense. It takes a lot of pressure off them too. Because as parents, of course, we worry about whether our kids are going to find a place in the world and make a successful transition to adult life. But if you make parents see that this is the new normal, this is now the path that people typically take, and it doesn't mean they're never going to grow up, virtually everybody does take on adult commitments by around age 30, then they relax and they're able to see emerging adulthood more as an opportunity than some kind of failure to grow up. Yeah, I, I, I definitely agree. What, what's your take on the increase in depression and anxiety? I know that's a loaded question, but you know, it's, it's, we're seeing a, a massive increase in I think we're all kind of trying to put our finger on it and you know, there's a lot going into that. What's your, do you feel strongly about what could be contributing? Yeah, I've looked into this quite a lot and it is my understanding that it's mainly an American phenomenon. It's not increasing in other countries, although we don't have great data on other countries, but it's mainly in the U S and Andrew, it's not just among the young. Anxiety and depression and suicide are going up across age groups from age 15 through the 60s. And nobody really predicted this. And as far as I can tell, nobody really knows why, that, that this is what American life is becoming like. And it's not just the last two or three years, it's a period of about 10 years now where these things have been increasing. So I think we should be concerned and should be investigating it. I do think for, that for emerging adults, certainly in 
my decades of interviewing them, I've seen a lot of people who are depressed and anxious. And it can be a depressing and anxious time in the sense that you have to be trying to answer these identity questions about who you are and how you fit into the world. And you can feel depressed if, if things aren't working out for you, if, if you are looking for a partner and can't seem to find anybody or keep uh, in a relationship, or you are trying educational paths that you're not succeeding in or you don't have the money for or turn out to be not what you want after all. Those things can cause a lot of, of depression and anxiety. So I think it's understandable that that's part of the 20s. I don't think the anxiety is necessarily a bad thing. I think anxiety can be motivating. It's what gets us off the couch and out of the house and exploring our options and trying out new things in the hope that we'll find something that will fit as one of the foundations of our adult life. But depression is worrisome because that takes the wind out of people and makes them less likely to use emerging adulthood as a period of exploration. And of course, suicide is the most alarming of all. It's, it's, grown, it's, it's grown, it's gone up across age groups in the last 10 years. And as I said, we don't really know why, but we certainly should be investigating why. You mentioned failed college or education uh, attempts, and I see a lot of this as well. Something we talk about a lot in our industry uh, is, you know, the trade schools. In your book, it's clear that college education is a good path for making good money and having stability in your life. Do you, do you have a strong opinion on if someone's really struggling with college and, and what those trades, trade schools are looking like and kind of the direction or changes we might see in approach to college being the way um, and, and maybe people being more open to alternatives down the road? Yeah, this is a great question and a really important one. I think trade schools are great. I wish more people would consider them. I wish more parents would be in favor of them. I wish as a society we would not romanticize a college education the way we do. I mean, it's true that a lot of good things go along with being college educated. I mean, over the course of a career, you make a lot more money than people who are not college educated on average. You're also more likely to have a stable marriage. You're more likely to keep a job over the course of the time that you want that job and you live longer. So college education is correlated with a lot of good things, but that doesn't mean you have to have a college education to have a good life. I mean, you can get a trade school education or training program and have the same benefits. And there are a lot of, there's a lot of need for people in the trades, everything from HVAC uh, installers to plumbers and electricians and computer technicians. My goodness, there's a huge, huge need for those. And that's something you can get through a trade school or a community college. So we ought to be thinking about those options more and we ought to be informing young people more of those options. We romanticize college way too much and that's why we pay too much for it. There is this romanticizing of going to your dream school, like there's some kind of mystical fit for you that is the only place you could really be happy. That's complete nonsense. What we know from decades of research is that in fact, it really doesn't matter where you go. There's no correlation in the long run between where you went to school and how professionally successful you are. It does matter. It does matter that you get some kind of education or training after high school, either finish a training program or finish a degree. But beyond that, it does not matter where you go. So it's foolish to spend hundreds of thousands of dollars uh, in student loans on, on an education for your so-called dream school. Don't go there, go to a place you can afford 
and you will very likely get an excellent education there. Do, do those statistics apply even to the top 10 colleges, the Ivy Leagues? and everything? They do. They do. Here's an interesting thing about that research, Andrew. People from those schools don't succeed uh, more professionally than people who have equal abilities, okay? So if you look at people who have equal SAT scores, and one, went, uh, one group went to state schools and another group went to Ivy League schools, in the long run, no difference in their professional achievements. But there is a difference between them and that the ones from the so-called top schools are less satisfied with the same achievements. Wow. And I think that's revealing. It, it makes people, it gives people the illusion that now they're set for life, but they're not. It's something that nobody cares about a couple of years off to, after you're out of your education. Then you have to prove your chops in the workplace. And the illusion that going to a school like that will set you for life comes back to bite them in many cases in the long run. And this, this problem of fixation on that best school or the school or the top school starts at preschool. In, yes. in the families that I've spoken with, if we don't get into the right preschool, we won't get into the right private school, then we won't get into the right college. And, and that's where... You know, I don't claim to have all the answers, but that's one correlation I see is yes. in some of our clients is, and I, I, I love the way you say it, romanticizing the college experience, when in reality, there's a lot of great places to get a great education. And so that really helps clarify for me that picture. And another book I enjoyed was the How to Raise a Young Adult. And, you know, she goes into a lot of depth on how colleges are ranked, why they're ranked the way they are. This is big money. And, you know, it's not, it doesn't tell the story. And I, as a, as a you know, culture, we're just so locked into this idea of the top schools or the best schools and, and the, you know, it's, it's game over. I mean, I don't know how many young adults think it's game over if I don't get to do the college I want it's game over. Everything's done from there. And it's like, right. Oh man, like you're 21. We got a lot yeah. of like, you're 19. Like we got a lot of uh, <laughs> life to live here. Um, and it's not going to impact you as much as you think. Right. Of course. Yeah. It's painful. I think it's painful to me to see how many illusions people have about it and how many bad decisions they make as a result. Uh, let me just give a tip to your listeners, Andrew, and to you too, since you have twins who are infants, and still have this to come. Pay no attention to the US News and World Report rankings. Those are the best known and they're totally useless. They're based on idiotic metrics like alumni giving that have nothing to do with the quality of education. Look in the Princeton Review instead. You can get that information online or you can buy their, their yearly uh, uh, best colleges book. They base their ratings on the classroom experience. How knowledgeable are the professors? How available are the professors? What kind of internships can you get? Those kinds of things matter. So that's a good place to look. Do not pay attention to the U.S. news rankings and don't pay attention to the Ivy League either. either. Almost all those schools rank low in the Princeton Review, including Harvard, by the way. And it's because they don't prize teaching. They have their reputation on the basis of their research and their uh, scholars who rarely teach undergrads. And if you want good teaching, which should be something you're looking for, then you should be using the Princeton Review. That's good to know, thank you. Along these lines, shifting categories a little bit, though, let's talk about finding a relationship and a mate. You know, that's something that when you spoke that really stuck out to me, and that is we're putting so much pressure on finding a soulmate. Um, it's a lot of pressure. I believe your words were that's a lot of pressure to put on a partner. Um, even when you do find somebody compatible and that you like and that you have chemistry with and you're attracted to. Do you want to speak to that for a minute? Sure. I think this soulmate idea, which is something I've heard a lot in interviews, I think 
it's a mixed bag. I think it's probably another kind of illusion that's not very helpful because it doesn't mean expecting an inhuman level of perfection out of somebody, which is bound to be shattered eventually. But I also think that for the most part, when people have talked about finding their soulmate in interviews with me, they, they, they really don't mean a, a perfect person necessarily. They, they more often mean a person who's, who's just right for me. So the person who is a really good fit. We like to do the same things with our free time. We laugh at the same things. We understand each other. We are loving and generous to each other. Those are the kinds of things I think that go into that ideal. And those are all good things. Those are all wonderful things if you can find them. I do think it's in some ways tougher today to find that person because most people aren't really ready to find that person until at least their late 20s, often their early 30s. And by then, you, you aren't in the college context anymore. You're not in any context where you necessarily are around people your age and who are also uh, unattached all day. I mean, that makes it somewhat harder to find people. Yeah, there is social media, but there are an awful lot of frogs to be kissed in the course of finding people on social media before you find your soulmate, it seems to me. I think um, there's a lot of frustration with that way of finding people because it's so hard to tell anything about a person really just from the way they present themselves on social media. So it, it's a challenge, but people are still finding ways to do it. I mean. 85% of people are still marrying by age 40. Traditionally, it was 90% uh, for a long, long time, for many decades. Now it's 85%. But there's another 5% who are long-term cohabitors. So it hasn't really gone down. We're, we're basically built to find partners, is what I've concluded. Every, every society has some kind of marriage or other uh, institution that means uh, finding a partner that you commit yourself to hopefully for life and we were still managing to do it but i, I do think it, it can be frustrating and challenging to go through that process and you know you're bound to get bruised by it uh, one way or another in the course of your 20s if you go through a series of partners. Yeah, I, and I think the, the constant theme comes back to, and my advice to emerging adults listening would be sit, like part of, part of the challenge of this is sitting in, in the unknown, right? Sitting in the unknown of a life partner, sitting in the unknown of a career. Um, and I think that's for me where a lot of my discomfort came from was like, I just wanted to know. And I think that's natural to want to know, right? What it's going to look like. And ironically, as I got into my later 20s, I got more comfortable with the unknown. Where in my early 20s is where I felt probably more of that anxiety. So I think for probably my, my experience is that for most people, it works the opposite way. In that uh, in their early 20s, they, they're figuring, oh, you know, I, I can't, I haven't found anybody yet, but I probably will. And by their late 20s, by the time they get to be, to be around age 30 and they have friends uh, and other people they know who are pairing off and getting married and they're going to weddings, then they start to feel the heat and feel, gosh, you know, I don't want to be the last one uh, standing at the dock when the love boat sails away. Yeah. I, I wonder if being married and divorced by 29 or I think 28 uh, played a part in that. And, and uh, but yeah, that makes sense. It, it definitely makes sense in terms of what you're seeing. Um, Jeff, in closing, you know, any advice for parents and of emerging adults that are struggling or emerging adults that are struggling? What, what would you say in closing? Well, I have a lot of sympathy for parents of emerging adults, being one myself. You know, I'm fortunate with my kids. They're great kids. They've always been successful in school. They're responsible and loving. 
uh, and really, uh, I really enjoy them and enjoy time with them. Uh, and I am now trying to practice what I've been telling parents for many years, which is to be patient and not try to urge them to make a life for themselves by your timetable, to, to be respectful of their timetable. And I, I'm, the way I look at it, as long as they are happy and healthy and engage in something, that is helping to move them along in life, that I'm happy too. And I've seen a lot of the ways things can go wrong with uh, mental health problems or failing in school or having some kind of uh, physical, medical problem. There are an awful lot of thing, ways things can go off track. And if your kid is not experiencing any of those things, you should count your blessings and respect their timetable, respect their right to make their own life for themselves and not the life you would have made for them and cross your fingers and hope because once they get into their 20s, your power really diminishes and they're gonna make decisions that you may not agree with. And a lot of it, I think in the end, has to be you respecting their right to construct a life for themselves and hoping sincerely and lovingly that that, that life will be a good one. Where can people find you and your book? JeffreyArnett.com and you can certainly find my book on emerging adulthood, the one I believe you read, Emerging Adulthood, The Winding Road, through the late, from the late teens through the 20s, is available just about everywhere you look. And also, I've written a book for parents as well called Getting to 30, A Parent's Guide to the 20-something Years. So parents in particular might be uh, interested in that presentation of emerging adulthood. Jeffrey, thank you so much for your time. I enjoyed our, our conversation on that beautiful boat ride in Coeur d'Alene and love hearing you talk about your twins that are 20 and have, you know, appreciated your advice for my twins that are one. And um, I, I may call on you for more advice in the future. And I, I look forward to continuing this conversation and I really appreciate your time. I think this will be really helpful for a lot of people. Thanks, Andrew. It's been a pleasure talking to you, and I look forward to further updates with those twins. Mine will always be older than yours are, so I should always be able to share my advice for what it's worth. <laughs> Definitely. Thanks a lot. <laughs> All right. Hey, guys. Thanks again for joining this episode of In the Trenches with me, your host, Andrew Taylor. If you like what you're hearing, I would love it if you would subscribe to my podcast. You can find me on iTunes and SoundCloud. It's In the Trenches with Andrew Taylor. So thanks for joining and hope to see you next time.